Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am pleased today to welcome Kristen Andersma, who is the author of Dignity Not Debt, an abolitionist approach to economic justice from the University of California Press. Kristen, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So if we could, why don't you tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do and how you came to this particular project? Sure. So my name is Kristen Andersma. I'm a professor, law professor at Rutgers Law School. I teach uh, bankruptcy and commercial law, which is something that I never, ever imagined uh, that I would ever be focusing on. So the story of this book is actually the story about why I teach bankruptcy in the first place. Um, So when I uh, was in law school, I really wanted to My goal was to focus on justice issues. I cared about social justice. I cared about fighting the prison industrial complex. I cared about uh, constitutional rights. And um, I transferred from ASU to Harvard because I wanted to become a professor because my ASU professors told me, okay, if you become a law professor, you can do interesting policy work. So in my um, admissions letter, I said, all right, I'm going to do this, all the social justice stuff and cool policy work on these intersectionality issues and constitutional rights, criminal justice, so forth and so on. And um, I got admitted there. And uh, my first week, actually, there was this lunch lecture offered by Elizabeth Warren. And uh, at the time, this was 2005, right? So she was a bankruptcy professor. She wasn't yet a senator. Much Just a mere professor. professor at Harvard Law. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, she had already like, had a huge reputation for being just phenomenal and brilliant and her classes were always so hard to get into um but anyways it was going to be a lecture on the socratic method now at this time i thought well the socratic method that's oppressive and anti-feminist and uh i'm going to go to this lecture i'm going to raise my hand and i'm going to say you know no like you shouldn't uh, you know cause your students so much distress to just like make things easier for the white guys in the class and all this um but you know uh, uh, most of you have heard uh, Elizabeth Warren speak, knows that she is quite persuasive uh, <laughs> for many of us. And um, she started talking about how, you know, if you really care about equality in the classroom, uh, you have to make sure that uh, you use the Socratic method. It's the only way because I mean, I'm, I don't know if, if uh, I'm sure people would disagree. But for her, she said, if, if you rely on only volunteers and you don't force every Buddy in the class to participate, it's going to be those white guys that get their hands up. And and she's like, everybody needs to learn how to think on their feet, you know? Um, 
And so the best thing to do is to just make sure that everybody can participate. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, I, you know, I hadn't really thought about it that way before. So I wrote her an email after that meeting and I said, I, I, uh, I, I want to teach. I, I never thought I would use a Socratic method, but after hearing you speak, I kind of feel like a convert. So would you be willing to talk more with me about it? And um, and she said, sure, I'm always interested in the students that are interested in commercial law. And I was like, oh my God, what did I say in this email? That is <laughs> what have I done? What have I done? <laughs> so I go to her office, like all prepared to say, look, you know, this is all nice and everything. I wanted to be a teacher and everything, but you know, I'm doing the just, I'm doing social justice stuff. I'm not, I'm not doing this economic stuff. So that was what I prepared to say. And I started to say that. And she said, you know, if you really care about justice, you really ought to think about looking at these issues of bankruptcy. If you care about fighting racism and sexism and all these things, think about bankruptcy and commercial law, because, you know, this is a, a, this system is causing so much suffering for people who are marginalized. And right now, most of the people that are focusing on economic stuff are people that only care about free markets, economic efficiency, sort of, and are not looking at the justice side of things. So you, you know, really be, uh, make, can make a difference um, if you turned your attention to bankruptcy and commercial law. And so I did. Uh, and then I later found out from her husband that she was actually on the admissions committee and remembered my <laughs> application of like had a plan <laughs> to recruit me <laughs> to like take my justice passion to bankruptcy and commercial law. So that's the, the story of why I'm interested in this. Um, and then in terms of this book, um, it's a long time coming, really, because my own family filed for bankruptcy. My sister got sick. Insurance didn't cover it. Um, and uh, they had to. My dad lost his, his business. They lost their house in foreclosure, um, you know, and uh, they had to file for bankruptcy and, and, and get a fresh start. And I thought about and I tell my students the story about my family at the start of class. And so many of them come up to me and say, you know, this happened to me, it happened to my family, it happened to my friend. Um, and they're so relieved to hear somebody else share it because there's still so much shame around it. And, um, you know, the more research that I that I did, I was at the same time that this happened to my family. And then as I'm teaching and hearing more student stories from my students, I'm also doing more and more research. I starting with the Elizabeth Warren's research on bankruptcy, which proved that people don't file for bankruptcy because they're like reckless and stupid. And, you know, running up debts on uh, fancy electronics or fancy mortgages or, you know, luxury cars and things like that. They're filing for bankruptcy because in this country, you have to often turn to debt to get through an emergency or just to survive. The reasons they file are because of medical debt, family breakups or job loss. Um, and then um, so I had I had that um, in mind and like thought of kept thinking about how the the story of American debt is a lie. Then I uh, connected with Abby Atkinson, who was, uh, I was the TA and she was in her contracts law class. And so that's how we became friends. And she's also doing, thinking about these issues in her work and um, especially um, focusing on um, the problem of uh, credit policy in this country where we this idea that credit can also lead to prosperity and equality that this is going to solve our inequality problems if we just give everybody credit right so she and i started talking about this during the pandemic and we actually she wrote a brilliant article called borrowing equality um in columbia law review and then and um, they invited me to write a response so we started this discussion about well what how should our household 
that landscape actually look right like we know that this what we have everybody well not everybody but those of us who study it know that it's rooted in lies it's perpetuating inequality it's causing so much suffering so what's the alternative and that's when i came up with this idea that well first of all we need a totally new taxonomy for debt because this whole idea that if you just stay away from uh stay away from bad debt and only take on good debt that you're fine you know that's not actually reality so what is the reality so I came up with a new taxonomy and then basically a totally new approach uh, to debt to try to figure out, help us figure out, okay, what kinds of debt are actually our policymakers should encourage and what should we actually move towards abolishing? Um, so that's a very long story. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so why don't we start with maybe uh, the, the 30,000 foot view. So you're writing about... Uh, what is often called household debt. So talk a little mm -hmm. bit about sort of, of that category and then give us an overview, right? How many people are we talking about? What are the numbers? What are the causes? And then I want to move into that taxonomy that you referred to uh, to help people understand how you are thinking about how we should be thinking about this kind of debt. Sure. Yeah. So household debt, um, I, you, I use the term household debt rather than consumer debt because consumer debt in the bankruptcy code, the Congress recently, not recently now, it's 2005, but um, they changed the bankruptcy code to make it much harder for people to get relief. And they use this term consumer debt. And they said, if you have consumer debt, then we're going to make it really hard for you to get relief. Okay. Um, and the, you look at the congressional history and the all of it is saying that consumer debt is abusive debt and it's equated and courts had to buy into that because you can't just treat business debt separate from consumer debt without some justification. It would be unconstitutional, right? Even though it's a very low bar, it can't be totally arbitrary. So the courts then looked and said, well, consumer debtors can be treated worse. Why? Because you look at the congressional history and consumer debt, that means these are abusive debts that people are racking up debts recklessly. So that's why I avoid the term consumer debt and I use household debt instead. And when I talk about household debt, I'm talking about basically any debt that households or individuals are also, you know, it can be a one person household, right? Um, that people take on to survive and thrive. Um, and uh, the, the, the problem is that uh, for many households, the, our incomes are no longer sufficient to meet our basic needs, right? So you look at the fact that like, you know, half of uh, households can't afford rent. Like the housing affordability is just, uh, you know, out of control. Um, and then um, you look at the fact that, um, you know, our, our medical debt, there's no other country in the world, right, that's wealthy where people can you get a medical, have a medical emergency and you're in financial crisis, right? Medical uh, debt is yeah. like literally not a thing that exists in most other places. <laughs> right, exactly. And same with educational debt. So like think about, you know, um, the, the, the trillions of dollars of educational debt that we have here. And uh, just the idea that to get a basic education, you have to basically owe a house. There's no other wealthy country where that would even be conceivable, right? Um, so you have this thing where just to do the basics, you already have to take on debt and then forget it. it you know, we only really, because of things are so unaffordable, we only really earn enough to basically make ends meet for most Americans, you know, of course, like higher income Americans, fine, but for even for like the middle class, 
and you know, still we have many Americans that are uh, really, really struggling and food insecure and everything like that. But even for the middle class, right? If suddenly something happens, you lose your job, you have a medical emergency. Now you need to take on even more debt in order to just break even. And often the terms of debt, especially um, for uh, black and brown Americans and other marginalized Americans, the terms of this debt are often really predatory and abusive. So then we have what's called a debt spiral where people are just getting deeper and deeper in debt. And there's not the way that this country doesn't have a plan that like, okay, you have a financial emergency. Here is uh, some money for you. They did it during COVID, right? Can you imagine if during COVID, just think about what would happen if during COVID they were like, okay, everybody, you know, you're out of work too bad. Like what would have happened to households, to the whole economy? But they realized, no, like somebody has an emergency or they're not having any income. We can't just give them a loan, obviously, because they're not going to be able to repay it unless magically they suddenly have more income down the road you have to actually give a grant uh, like like financing that doesn't have to be repaid in order to survive an emergency but that, then we but this is how we deal with emergencies in this country um and there's just really not a safety net um you're right yeah. that that um more than a third of all u.s households have debt that will eventually go into collection yes yeah, so yeah. This, this is not sort of around the margin stuff, no. right? This is <laughs> affecting a very, very broad base of the U.S. population. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and... So, talk to us about 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 the category, how we should think about debt, and the categories we should think about it in. Yeah. So, the taxonomy that I have uh, come up with has um, really two categories and a third dimension. So, it's like the the reasons that you might take on that are either to survive or to have an opportunity, but that's of course overlapping, right? So like some uh, debt that is uh, for, you know, let's say uh, you need a basic education to earn a living wage, right? That could be in the, both the category of survival debt and opportunity debt. Um, you know, you like for example, when I uh, first went to college, I was, uh, you know, working at, at a, a dry cleaners making minimum wage. So obviously like I needed a, a college degree to, uh, or, to earn a living. Then once I had a college degree, I started earning like $13 an hour at the rate crisis center. Right. So now I, at that time in Chicago, that was, I think more or less the living wage. Right. Um, so, but then when I went to, so that would be survival debt and opportunity that my first, my undergrad degree, right. Because I needed it to make a, uh, you know, meet a minimum standard of living or standard of living consistent with human dignity, as I talk about, um, but then for my law school degree, I already could survive and actually have a life of dignity just with a college degree. So that law school degree was actually pure opportunity debt without also being survival debt. Um, other types of survival debt can be, of course, medical debt, um, car, right? Because we, uh, we can maybe sometimes feel like in New York City, if I, I have a car and a motorcycle, actually, those are both just opportunity debt without being survival debt because I could use public transit really to get around. But for most of Americans, you really can't get around without a car, right? Um, you uh, it, it, to get to work, to um, get your kids to school, get to the doctors, you need a car. So that is really survival that you can also say opportunity ethic. It's overlap because that, you know, could be sort of uh, increasing your opportunity compared to like having to take the bus, right? But so it's both survival and opportunity. Um, and then the, the the other dimension of this is extractive or non-extractive debt. So all each of these loans could be offered uh, without interest on non-predatory terms, or perhaps they are 
um, offered at really high interest rates. And maybe the lender knows or should have known that this person is never going to be able to repay. You know, there's uh, in terms of like the the subprime auto, for example, you know, uh, see uh, how many dealers sort of their model depends on uh, if, if they're in the subprime market, they know that the person's the car is going to get repossessed and then they're going to just sell that car again to somebody else, repossess it and sell it again. Meanwhile, they can still go after the original borrower for the amount left on the loan. Right. This is this is yeah. the, the story of the housing crisis and the Great Recession, right? Yes, absolutely. It's like a, a systematized uh, uh, effort at targeting vulnerable populations and loading them with debt that that folks knew would never be repaid. Absolutely, exactly. Because there's money to be made. Yes, is it any more complicated than that? Right. No, that's exactly right. It really and th that extractive debt, like the way that I um, uh, define it, is really debt that is. Uh, um, it provides a benefit for somebody other than the borrower and is substantially likely to harm the borrower. So it's like, uh, it, it, yeah, other people are getting rich. These financial institutions are, are are profiting. You know, various companies may be profiting, but like the actual borrower is no better off um, and is in fact probably worse off as a result of this transaction. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off so perfect why don't we uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of what happens to people when they when they in in incur um uh debt that that they are unable to repay yeah so i mean there's a lot of empirical uh work on this now that this I, so this goes back to the myth that people just file for bankruptcy you know uh just frivolously for any reason, and uh, they maybe took on debt strategically. But the 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 lengths that people go to before filing for bankruptcy, um, people will end up going without necessary medicine. They will end up uh, cutting back how much they eat. Uh, they um, will have to miss out on utility bills. You know, they sort of juggle around which debts they they can pay for a while and um, they will do this for several years. And really bankruptcy is only a, a, a last resort because there is still so much shame around seeking relief because of these lies that like, oh, if, you, if you're getting bankruptcy, then, you know, you're just abusing the system. Um, debt collection. Talk a little bit about, about sort of that side of the industry. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the resources that folks do or do not have when they wind up in, in debt collection. 
Yeah, I mean, this is it's our what's it's really wild that really our state courts have become a tool for creditors and and debt collectors. Like that's the most common case in our uh, in our state courts now is debt collectors using the court system to extract um, from borrowers. And the the problem is that on um, you know. Most of these are are default judgments, meaning that the person never actually shows up in court, either because they did not get the notice, they didn't understand the notice, they thought they wouldn't have any defense, um, or you know maybe they they uh, they couldn't uh, get there because they had uh, another they had to work or you know whatever reason. Um, most people don't uh, sh- uh, show up. I think it's over ninety percent that are default judgments. Um, and then once that default judgment is out there, uh, what happens then is that their wages can be garnished or usually that it's most commonly going to be wage garnishment or bank uh, garnishment, or sometimes it can be property seizure. Um, but then uh, we also have a problem, which is shocking. And I just you know learned this a few years ago that the, the other thing that, it, that our state uses actually, uh, that debt collectors in, like combination with the state use is threats of arrest so like if they if somebody doesn't uh respond to once there is the judgment right and then they have to get another they have to the creditor has to go through the whole process right of actually turning that judgment into the garnishment order or whatever but to do that they need to know like what where does the debtor work what's the bank account and if the debtor fails to provide the information again maybe they didn't uh, provide it or they didn't show up at that hearing or they didn't send in the paperwork for maybe the same reasons that they didn't show up at the first one either they didn't receive it or they um weren't just weren't able to um and then there can be a contempt of court um uh order out there right so somebody and there's actually you know tens of thousands of americans that sit in jail because they because they're poor they because they're poor exactly Yeah. yeah um so we, I mean, we still have debtors prisons, right? We do um, absolutely yeah. still have debtors prisons. Yeah. And the thing that's so heartbreaking is that like, there's actually, it, it's not that uh, you can defend against debt collection. So many of these are like past the statute of limitations or the 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 debt collector may not have the right, uh, it's like a debt buyer, somebody that bought the debt, right? They usually don't have the proper proof that they actually own the debt, right? Um, so you could show up and say, okay, prove, prove that you actually are entitled to this payment. And usually they can't, but, um, uh, borrowers don't know that they don't know their rights. And I think they, uh, you know, it's just daunting to figure out how to even go about fighting. And they're, they're unlikely to have lawyers, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because lawyers are expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. And this, this is not a proceeding in which the state is obligated to provide a lawyer. If you can't afford one, right? That's exactly right. And um, the that you know there are some nonprofits and various organizations that that do this work, but they're just so under resourced and so few and far between that, like uh, you know, recently I had somebody, I think maybe a student that wanted help, uh, like wanted legal representation, and um, was looking for like a nonprofit thing and i so i asked one of my colleagues that does that and she was like you know i honestly like hesitate to even give them this number because like the odds that this organization is going to have be able to help them are just so low i don't want to like give them false hope that uh they're going to be able to get a lawyer uh but there are some programs like uh, you know they're, they're you know they're out there it's just it's very 
not enough of them. They're under-resourced. Yes. Yeah. Um, So what do we do about this? Well, (laughs) I mean, it's sometimes it makes me sad to even say this because this thing seems so daunting and like just where we are with our policy in this country right now. But, But like, the only thing we can do, what we, this is not going to change until people don't need debt to survive. That's first and foremost, like we cannot have, how is it that we tolerate this, that we have, it's just an expectation that you have a medical emergency and you know, your life could be financially ruined that how do we tolerate that you have to owe you know, a whole house just to get an education. I talked to my Norwegians, my Norwegian friend is about this, um, you know, and they, they, they're just aghast, you know, and they say, you know, of course they're like, here we have conservatives, you know, we, we have like people that are like hate immigrants and hate trans people. We have like those sort of right wing folks, but like even those, like the far right wing people that we know, like even they would never dream of like having a, a situation where the, the government uh, was not involved in an, uh, health, you know, a medical system or an educational system. And, and they would not, they, and they do not allow so much of it to be, to be in the private market. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's just subsidized. Like, of course, it's like, well, of course the government is going to uh, deal with the medical things we have a system for. And why would that, uh, you know, be an individual's responsibility. Why should, you know, you break your leg, now you have to pay for it. Like, that's, uh, there's better ways to do it. Um, And yeah. So how how do we get there, right? So if if you're giving us this vision as you do in the last third of the book of a world in which people do not need to take on debt in order to meet both those survival and opportunity needs. Yeah. That's not going to happen tomorrow, obviously, as you recognize. Yep. I mean, what do you, how do you encourage us to start thinking about this problem to move to a place where we can mitigate it? Yeah, to be honest, I think we really need to do what we can to focus locally and at, at the state level because there are um, some bright spots, um, so some states that are really uh, making progress on this. And I think it's uh, when we think about like our the the our power as individuals when it comes to the federal electorate it's we're very far removed from it but like take minnesota for example they had a recently a budget that includes free school meals to children free tuition at public colleges for families earning up to eighty thousand a year up to 18 weeks of paid family and medical leave expanded health insurance access a child tax credit of 1750 per child um, for households making up to thirty five thousand, and then gradually um phasing out up to like ninety six thousand two fifty. And they did this by raising taxes just 1% from 9.85% to 10.85% on earnings over 600000 for an individual and $1 million for a married couple. And they closed some corporate tax loopholes. So it's like, what is so frustrating about this is like, it's so freaking simple. Like, we have enough money and we there are enough resources, you know, we just have to do a better job of like, have a fair system of taxation uh, that, you know, is able to fund these things so that we don't have a situation where people cannot live lives of dignity uh, at, at all and are like trying to take on, on debt in order to, to 
to get that. But you, when you're trying, when you have to rely on debt to survive, you can't have a life of dignity because it's there's too much insecurity. There's there's too much fear. There's too much anxiety. The psychological toll, the medical, the health toll. You know, uh, it's just uh, it, it, it makes it makes me sad and it sort of sickens me that like we've we've decided to just accept that this is how things are in this country and you would think this would be something that would be across the aisle right like why do we want this why why are we taught why we tolerate it but if if, and this is going outside the corners of your book but i'm going to do it anyway (laughs) Uh, um i mean if we look at 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 public opinion polling Right. Yeah. Uh, large majorities in favor of some kind of universal health care program, large yeah. majorities of favor in favor of increasing uh, tax rates on the very wealthy, um, mm-hmm. large majorities in favor of, of all kinds of things that you that you, I think, and I would both identify as steps forward to improve the well-being of large chunks of the population. Mm-hmm. But it is the political system itself and the way it is organized and how power is allocated that stops us from seeing those popular preferences translated into policy. Yeah, I think that's very true. And that's why I sort of have more hope at, at, at the local level at, at this point, um, just because it does seem that um, there can be more traction mm-hmm. there. Yeah. I don't know if you've, you've probably seen this uh, 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 New York uh, as part of the recent budget, right, has, I forget the numbers, has set aside money in order to buy and forgive medical debt. Yes, um, this is exactly, that's exactly the type of program yeah. that is like, you know, it's something that we, we cannot, we can achieve these things on, um, you know, a whole like federal solution seems pretty far away from possible, but there are states that are doing things like that. Exactly. Uh, you're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Kristen Andersma, who is the author of Dignity, Not Debt, An Abolitionist Approach to Economic Justice, uh, new out from University of California Press. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.